Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. We are in the ninth week now of our Seek First series where uh, we are looking at the theme of the Father's House in 2024 uh, as we study through the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. And uh, our key verse for this year and for the series is found in Matthew 6, 33. And here's what I'd like us to do. We haven't done this all together in a while. Let's all read it together, shall we? It says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he will give you everything that you need. That's a good promise right there. That's worth an amen at the 11 o'clock service. I love that. I love that scripture. Hope you memorize it. Hope you get it in you. And uh, for the last eight weeks, we've been talking about what it looks like to live this seek first kind of life, to embrace the very challenging and difficult teachings of Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount and allow them to change the way we think and thereby the way that we live. And uh, usually this is the part of the sermon where we would take a moment and we would recap all the stuff we've talked about up until this point, especially if you haven't been here to kind of get everybody on the same page. But instead, what I'd like to do this morning is I want to take this opportunity and I want to thank you for continuing to come to church during this series. I want to thank you for continuing to submit yourself to the difficult teachings of Jesus, no matter how much pain they might inflict on a Sunday morning, but to keep coming back over and over and over again for some more. I know that it hasn't been easy. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, especially, we've been talking about some some pretty difficult stuff, like what do you do with your anger and your rage and revenge and how to treat our enemies. And then uh, Robin taught a phenomenal message last weekend on the subject of divorce and God's heart for marriage. Um, If you were not here, even if your marriage is fantastic today, I just want to encourage you, go back and listen to that and use it as a resource. We all know somebody who's walking through, uh, through a difficult season in their marriage. That is a great resource to send out to somebody. And I would honor her because usually she's sitting in the front row. Uh, but today she's actually serving in our kids' church because we don't have enough volunteers for that. So, you know, let the Holy Spirit speak to you as, as he might on that. Just a baby little guilt trip at the beginning of the sermon today. Um, but I, I will say this. With all those hard teachings, it can be easy to, to use Sunday morning as an off-ramp. You're like, Tahoe sounds great right now, you know? I'm going to go enjoy the snow. And I, don't, I like the teachings about peace and joy and healing and provision. But... When you get into the second half of the gospel about like dying to yourself and sacrifice and serving and generosity, like, ah, those are not very exciting things. And if you look around the room and it feels like some people have been missing the last couple of weeks, perhaps, I just submit, perhaps they're in Tahoe this morning, you know, I don't know. But but, but the act of disappearing Christians is not a new thing. It's been happening since Jesus issued these teachings back in the New Testament. In fact, there's a story in John chapter six uh, Jesus has just finished up one of his, his difficult sermons and he's getting ready to give the altar call. He calls the band up, you know, the keyboard player shows up. Ooh, yeah. and, and after he's made this really challenging list of statements, he's like, who wants to follow me? And, you know, people were in it when things were good and he was multiplying loaves and fishes and a bunch of people were getting healed. And it's kind of like college ministry, you know, when the food's free and the, the, the spirit is flowing, everyone's there, right? But then the second he issues this difficult challenge to come and follow him, it says that many people walked away. And Jesus looks at his disciples and the faithful 12, and he goes, so, so what are you going to do? Are you going to leave now too? And I love Simon Peter's answer. He looks back at Jesus and he says, Lord, where else can we go? You alone have the words that lead to life. 
And when I look around our church today and I look around this 11 o'clock service, I feel like I'm surrounded by a bunch of where else can we go kind of people. (laughs) Some people that are not just here for the free donuts and the free coffee and the feel good teaching, but are like, I'm here because I want to become more like Jesus. I'm here because I want to hear what the word of God has to say about my life. And even if it's challenging or confronting or convicting, I'm coming back for more because I want to become the kingdom person that Jesus has called me to become. Come on. Is that you this morning? Are you up for it? All right. Well, now that I've buttered you up, let's get into today's difficult teaching. Uh, We're going to look at Matthew chapter five, verse 27, another collection of really challenging words here from Jesus. He says this. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, you should cut that off too and throw that away. It's better for you to lose a part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. (laughs) Cool, 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 cool. Uh, Pretty extreme language here from Jesus. We've now officially entered the part of the Sermon on the Mount where we're teaching the gospel of amputation and mutilation, all right? I can understand why some of the disciples were like, I'm good. I'm going to bounce on this one. This is getting a little bit weird. But, But honestly, I think as we look at these statements today, we will discover that while they were never intended to be taken literally, the application is equally as challenging as the literal application that Jesus might suggest here in his statements. And so we're going to get into it. Slap the person next to you. Tell them, buckle up one more time. Don't get offended. Don't walk out. Put a smile on your face. Take it like, it, like you need to take it. Take your medicine. And here's, this, here's the title for today's chat. I, w- I want to call this sermon, Beware of the Snare. Beware of the Snare. Uh, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us today. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the timeless truths that are contained in these scriptures. Thank you that this is not fairy tales and fables and fictional stories contained in leather-bound pages, but it is the living, breathing, active word of God that can transform our lives and transform our minds. And so today we come with open hearts, open minds, ready to receive what you'd speak to us. God, I ask if there's any areas of our life where we've said off limits, any area of our hearts we've closed off to you, that by your spirit today, you would open those areas up, you'd speak to where we're at, and you would transform us before we leave this place. In the name of Jesus and the church said, amen, amen. So as we get now into this section of the sermon, we are confronted with some pretty familiar words that Jesus has been using now for the last couple of weeks as he gets into these difficult teachings. That phrase where he says, you've heard it said, and then he quotes from something in the Old Testament, and now I say, as he elevates his, his rule, his law, his new way of thinking and living, uh, some words that are supposed to serve as a verbal cue to hearken back to what he said at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17, where he made it clear that he did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets, but that he came to fulfill their greater purpose. And that fulfilling was to reveal to humanity that we did not have a rule-following problem. It was not that we did not have enough laws and enough rules or enough clarity about we should or what we shouldn't do, but we have a heart problem, a heart problem that Jesus came to expose, but then ultimately heal. And the heart problem that he is revealing here in this text 
is the problem of passivity as it pertains to sin. Um, it might look, at this, when, when you see this text at face value, that Jesus is talking about adultery. In fact, depending on your translation of the Bible, that might even be the subheading. I, I read from the NLT, and in my uh, Bible here, it says, teaching about adultery. So it, it would make sense that this is about, supposed to be about adultery. But I think that subheading does us a disservice because this was never intended to solely be applied to the sin of adultery. The, the, these words were intended to have a much broader application to the Christian than just the area of adultery. And we know that because Jesus uses this really extreme barbaric language in a number of different places throughout his teachings. And in many of the other gospels, and perhaps most notably in the very same gospel of Matthew, just a few chapters later, when he begins to speak about the subject of temptation. Look, look at what he says again now in Matthew 18, verse 7. He says, what sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin. Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? So if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown into eternal fire with both of your hands and feet. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. So again, pretty aggressive language here as Jesus speaks about the subject of temptation and he once again begins to preach the gospel of amputation and mutilation, only now he adds a third appendage to the list. It was hands and eyes and now he adds a foot for good measure. He's like, hey, if your foot causes you to sin, you should go and cut that sucker off as well. This is getting weird, Jesus. Like if he had a PR guy, I'm sure this is the point where he pulls him aside. He's like, hey, listen, Jesus. Um, so these sermons are getting a little bit awkward for the people. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but the crowds are dwindling. The giving is drying up. If you could go back to like the grace and the mercy and like the joy and the happy stuff, just preach a few of those sermons and let's get the people back in the building. Like this is weird. But, but ultimately this second mention now around temptation, it proves to us that, that Jesus is not simply intending for this extreme language to be applied to adultery. It's, it's, it's also now temptation, and, and it has a broader application, but it also proves to us that Jesus really never intended for these statements to be taken literally. Okay, in the first one, Matthew 5, he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. So he's apparently saying that the left-handed people are holier than the right-handed people, all right? And Robin's left-handed, so that tracks for me for sure. But now he's speaking more ambidextrously. He's like, if any of your hands or feet or eyes cause you to sin, pluck them out, cut them off. So think about this for a moment. He's clearly not literal because if you were to pluck out an eye, cut off a hand, cut off a foot, what are you left with? Another hand, another foot, and another eye. And if you're supposed to cut off anything that makes you sin, then you're going to end up having to pluck the other one out, cut the other ones off. And if Jesus intended for these statements to be taken literally, we would have churches filled with blind people with no hands and no feet who are very frustrated because they've cut a whole lot of stuff off only to find that they are still fully capable of sinning because it was never a hand issue or a foot issue or an eye issue in the first place. It was a heart issue that Jesus was intending to address. So if all of this language is hyperbolic and was never intended to be taken literally, then the question becomes, what is Jesus actually speaking to here? With this really weird, intense language, what is the message he's attempting to convey? 
Well, to answer that, we have to kind of do what we've done every week in this series. We need to look back at his statements in the original language, and we need to define a term that might help us frame in what he really means when he says we should cut off a hand, cut off a foot, or pluck out an eye. Both in Matthew 5 and then again in Matthew 18, Jesus uses this word, stumble. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, if your foot causes you to stumble, if your eye causes you to stumble, then deal with it aggressively. Now, that word stumble in the Greek language has a really interesting definition that actually we wouldn't assume based on the word. In the Greek, it is the word scandalon, and it means a trap or a what? Or a snare. Beware of the snare. So so Jesus is using hunting terms here to convey his message. Uh, Let let me check. Do we have any hunters in the room today? Yeah, I didn't think so. (laughs) We live in San Francisco. Let's be honest. Our hunting consists of parking spots and good coffee shops. That's kind of how we hunt. I I suppose if you're single today, you're you're sort of hunting in a sense, you know. (laughs) Watch as the bearded tech worker prowls the streets of the marina in search of a blonde in Lululemons. Yeah. (laughs) I am clearly not a hunter, as you can tell. Uh, My hunting experience is limited to online shopping. Uh, I can find a really good deal on some shoes, but if my survival was based on my ability to hunt food in the wilderness, I would die very quickly. I would look great, because I'd have a great pair of shoes on, but I would die in a matter of days, all right? But but in biblical times, hunting was a way of life. It was a very normal day-to-day activity for people. They didn't eat unless they hunted. And Jesus is now appealing to an audience that would be very familiar with this term and with this analogy. They they knew that as Jesus began to speak here of our predisposition, our propensity to sin, likening it to a trap, they they would have been able to to imagine what he's speaking of here. He's saying sin is, is is like a trap that a hunter sets for an animal. It's like a a trip line in the density of a forest or a bear trap beneath some leaves that a, that a hunter has set so that when an unsuspecting animal walks by and steps on that trap, they are gripped, they are latched, and they can't go anywhere. He's saying this is what sin is like. It tries to, to grip you, to keep you, to restrain you. No longer do you have the freedom to go about your life, but it's like you get stuck because of the snare of sin. Uh, For the visual learners in the room, uh, let me me provide a bit of an illustration. Um, In full disclosure, I had originally wanted to do this with a bear trap. Um, They don't sell those on Amazon, just so you know. Well, they don't ship those to San Francisco from Amazon. (laughs) They're concerned about what kind of person would order a bear trap in San Francisco, so you know, whatever. Uh, so I had to kind of kind of distill this, this, this imagery down a little bit. So instead of a live bait and a bear trap, um, I offer to you Barbie and a rat trap today, all right? So, <laughs> so, so <laughs> I would do great in kids' church. I'm just throwing that out there, all right? I would crush it in there. Let you, come on, let me teach you kids' church every once in a while. So... Jesus says, this is what sin is like. There you are hanging out with Jesus. We all know Jesus is blonde with blue eyes. You've seen the painting before, okay? He looks just like Ken. And clearly you're worshiping. (laughs) 
or, or maybe you're the worshiper with the hand down here. You know, it, it's equal opportunity Barbie there for worship, all right? So, so you're hanging out with the Lord, and life is good. You're just growing in God, reading the Bible, coming to church. But as you're walking through the proverbial forest of your life, you're like, what's that over there? And Jesus is like, no, don't go. It's bad. And you're like, but it looks really awesome. And, and he's like, it's, it's not good for you. Just, try, just stay with me. But because we are who we are, because of our fallen nature, our proclivity to sin, we disconnect for a moment and we begin to make our way towards the trap. Maybe it's sexual, maybe it's emotional, maybe it's financial, maybe it's a predisposition to substance abuse or addiction, but we make our way over to the trap and before we know it, exactly. And then this is what we become in the spirit. We limp into church with some bear traps on our ankle in the spirit, some scandal on, some snares that were waiting out there for us from the enemy. Hey, hey, let me remind you today, you have a very real enemy. He has a job description to steal, kill, and destroy everything good that God wants to do in your life. And... He's rather proficient at that. He, he has been a student of your life. I don't mean to give him more credit than he deserves, but rest assured, he has watched your moves. He, he's taken copious notes. He knows what causes you to stumble. He knows what bait you tend to respond to. He knows how to orchestrate the external events of your life in such a way that you will run to find reprieve and temporary pleasures. And he will use all of the ammunition at his, disposable, his disposal to get you in this position in the spirit, to get you trapped. But, but here's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is if this is what you look like in the spirit, you still have a savior. That when you cry out unto God, with a voice of triumph, like we sang a moment ago, when you have nothing in your spirit but help, in that moment, you have a good shepherd that leaves the 99 safe sheep to come running to the aid of the one who finds themselves trapped. One utterance, one mention of the name of Jesus, and he will come and he will set you free from every trap that tries to entangle you. But while that is the good news of the gospel, and it is 100% true, it is not the message Jesus is preaching here. That was not his sermon on the mount. It was not that God's going to save you from your snares. No, this was not a message to unsuspecting sheep who happened to wander into a trap in the wilderness of their life. This was a message to disciples that should know better. This was a message to people that had been forewarned, there are traps set for you, snares in your life that the enemy wants to use to take you out, and you gotta get aggressive about removing those things from your life. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 18? He made it, get out of here, he made it very simple. He said, temptations are inevitable. Chris Tucker translation. And you know this, man. You already knew they were there. Jesus told you they'd be there. 
You're not naive to this fact. Hey, I warned you you had an enemy. I warned you those snares were gonna be there. You knew you had a predisposition to lust and to greed and to anger and to addiction. This is not, you don't get to claim, oh, I didn't know. Yes, you did. So this is not a question of your awareness. This is a question of your aggression, your action. Have you done anything about those snares? Or have you tolerated the things that Jesus told you to eliminate in your life? What have you done about the traps? I, I think this, if we're honest, is the place where most of us mess up. I, I think most of us, rather than doing what Jesus is telling us to do here, to exercise aggression tantamount to cutting off a hand or a foot or plucking out an eye when it comes to sin, many of us overestimate our capacity to navigate around the traps in our life. Oh, I just, okay, I'm just gonna do, I'm gonna walk through that. We, th we think, well, you know, I just, I don't have to get out of the house. I mean, come on. I can still leave that in the house and not fall into its grip. I can still leave that app on my phone and not fall into the trap. I don't have to unsubscribe from the thing. I, I know I'm in relationship with this person and I know that they don't know God and every time we get together, we do ungodly things, but I don't really have to break up and sever the tie completely with that relationship because you know I should be able to navigate around that and still serve God in the process. I, I, I'm an adult. I'm not a child. I don't have to weed these things out of my life. I should be mature enough in my faith to be able to walk with these traps and just navigate around them. Only to discover time and time again that we are not as strong as we thought we were and we fall into the same traps over and over and over and over again, proving out the proverb that says, a fool returns to his sin like a dog returns to their vomit. Why? Because we tolerated the things Jesus told us we needed to eliminate. And all the people who struggled with a repetitive sin pattern in their life said, oh, amen. We've all been there. There's a story in, in the Old Testament, um, in the book of Exodus, about the people of Israel. They, they had now left the land of Egypt, They'd been set free from slavery, and they're on their way to the promise and God begins to give them some, some very clear instructions about how they are to conduct themselves as they step into this new promised land. And among those instructions were uh, some, some, some things they needed to do about the enemies that were currently inhabiting the land. And, and look at what God tells them to do in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verse 11. He says, Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But be careful not to make any treaties with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a what? A snare among you. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat of their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Is that just me or does it sound a whole lot like Matthew chapter five to anybody? Beware of the snares that are in the land. Hey, hey guys, when you get there, there's some traps set for you. They're gonna look like people, but they're traps. And you need to get aggressive about removing from the land anything that is going to trip you up 
anything that's going to cause you to slip into the worship of other gods, because if you don't, you will inevitably end up committing adultery. Same language as Jesus. Only this time, it's not with your spouse, it's against your God. You will give yourself intimately to other gods unless you aggressively eliminate the opportunities for sin in the land. And to be abundantly clear with his people, God does something he doesn't do a lot in scripture, but he does occasionally, he repeats himself. If you ever see a phrase repeated in scripture, it's because the biblical author is trying to tell you, pay attention, don't just breeze over this, lean in, because God really means what he's saying right here. And the, the warning that God repeats in, his, in this scripture is this, make no treaties. Can you say that with me? Make no treaties. You know what a treaty is, right? A treaty is when two enemies that should be fighting one another choose to live in peace. It's essentially contractual passivity. It's an agreement that I know you shouldn't be in my life. I know that we shouldn't be cohabiting right now, but I'm just tired of fighting. I'm tired of trying to get rid of you. So rather than trying to fight any longer, I'm just gonna acquiesce and leave this thing alone. We can live in peace with one another even though we shouldn't be anywhere around each other. That's a treaty. And sadly, that is exactly what the people of Israel did. Despite the warning, despite the clear instructions from God, they made treaties with the enemies of the land, with the Hittites and the Amorites and the Jebusites, the stalactites and the stalagmites and all the ites that were in the land. They, they chose to tolerate what God told them to eliminate. And as a result, their treaties became their traps. This agreement became a snare and instead of living in the blessing and in the provision and the peace that God had made available to them, they ended up getting evicted from the land and going back into slavery, the very thing that God rescued them from before. Once again, bound. Why? Because they made treaties. The Bible tells us that the events of biblical history are not recorded in there simply for our education but for our edification. Meaning we are intended to learn a lesson from these stories. We are intended to not make the same mistakes as we read about the mistakes of those that have come before us. And so this would be an appropriate opportunity for us to take a moment, as we so love to do here at the Father's House, and pose one of those uncomfortable personal questions, lest we point our finger at all the people in the Old Testament thinking we would never do anything like that, even though we're doing the exact same thing. So, so let me ask you the confronting question of the day. Have you made any treaties? Have you permitted anything in your life that God has explicitly told you to get rid of? Tolerating what you should be eliminating. God said, get aggressive. The words of Jesus, it should feel like cutting off a hand cutting off a foot, plucking out an eye. Christianity is not intended for your comfort. Have you exercised that level of aggression and intensity when it comes to sin? You know what tempts you. 
You know if you are given to lust or anger or addiction. You are well aware of the things that tempt you. Have you taken every effort to remove everything in your life that would cause you to get caught up in that snare? Or have you made treaties with the ites in your land? Because listen, I don't mean to use fear tactics to bring obedience to the word, but I think the scripture's clear on this one. You're welcome to do that if you want, but be warned, whatever you tolerate will one day dominate your life. No, I'm strong. I'm a, I'm, I've been following Jesus for 30. I don't care who, how strong you think you are or how long you've been following Jesus. You let sin remain in the camp. It's only a matter of time before that thing latches itself onto you and takes you down a road of destruction. And you may not have the same ites that they had. You may not have Amorites or Jebusites or Hivites in your life, but you got ites. Websites. Late nights. Swipe rights. Appetites, Bud Lights, Gas Lights, Mr. Wrongs masquerading as Mr. Rights. You all got your eyes in your life, all right? We all got things, we all got snares that if we don't get aggressive about, I don't care how strong you think you are, honey, they will take you out. And the Holy Spirit would come to you today with the language of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and say, if you have made treaties with any of those things, it's time to get aggressive. It's time to start cutting. It's time to start plucking. It's time to start chopping. It's time to get intentional about removing the enemies from the land that are going to take you out. Because listen, th this is bigger than you realize. It's bigger than you may give it credit for. Jesus did not mince his words here. He was abundantly clear. He said, it is better for you to enter into eternal life with less than eternal damnation having made treaties with the snares in your life. Translation, there is an eternity at stake in the midst of this. And listen, that, I'm sorry if that feels heavy or if it feels fear-based, but those are the words of Jesus. Those are not my words. And I think all of us, if we stop for a moment and look around, we would recognize that those words have proven true time and time again. I can point to chairs, and you probably can too, in this auditorium that used to be occupied by people who loved Jesus, hands lifted, saints on a Sunday morning sitting in the sanctuary that are nowhere to be found today, not because their faith was disingenuous or because they never really loved God, but because they tolerated some things in their life that they should have never tolerated in the first place. And when Jesus told them to get rid of the snare, they tried to navigate around it only to find it latching itself to them. And now they've been drug away from the kingdom of God. Why? Because they made some treaties. Don't you think for a moment that the same thing cannot happen to you? that you are impervious to that possibility. When we make treaties with the scandalones in our life, it's only a matter of time before they lead to our destruction. So you gotta break ties today. Now, if that isn't motivational enough, it should be, <laughs> but if it's not, allow me to provide one additional dose 
of motivation. Something that has really helped me in the process of eliminating and getting aggressive about areas of sin in my life. Something that has less to do with the possibility of what might happen if you don't and more about the promise of what will happen when you do. A promise that has honestly become one of my life verses. If you've been a part of this church for longer than a year, you've probably heard me mention this scripture a number of times, and that's because it radically changed my life in my early 20s. And I pray that today, as we look at it before we conclude, it will transform some lives here as well. As the worship team comes, last scripture here, but 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some are for common use. And then here's the line. If you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean and you will be ready for the Lord to use you. Paul, Paul tells us here that this aggression this unwillingness to make treaty with sin in our life, it doesn't just affect our future eternity, it also affects our present usability. Our capacity to be used by God. I think if you're here today and you have the spirit of Jesus living on the inside of you, that there is a hunger and a desire to be used by God. I think all of us have that. This longing in our hearts, in our spirit man, to do something significant for him in this life. No, no one wants to get to the end of their life and look back and have nothing but regret because we did nothing for the cause of the kingdom. We built our own kingdom, but not his. I think all of us with the spirit of Jesus on the inside of us, want to be able to say, I faithfully stewarded every moment, every day, every resource, every opportunity, every talent, every gift that he's given me to build his kingdom. We all have that in us. But the materialization of that desire is conditional. Back to the Israelites for a moment. God had a plan for Israel. He had a plan for his people in the Old Testament, a call, if you will. His plan was not that they would turn their backs on him and embrace the foreign gods of the nations they were supposed to evict from the land. His plan was not that they would end up back in slavery from the very place that he rescued them. No, his plan was that they would have peace and provision. In fact, the scriptures say that the goal of God was that they would become the envy of the nations, that the world would look at what God did with this people group and say, I want their God. I don't want to worship the things that have been, because clearly that is the one true, the only God. He wanted, he wanted them to be a display of his glory on the earth. But that call was conditional. And it was the same condition of this scripture. If you keep yourself pure, if you rid the land and your life of all of the snares that will try to take you out, then I will use you to display my glory to the earth. And what was true of them is true of you. 
Everybody look at me. You are called by God. You are not an accident. You are not the byproduct of an emotional moment at the end of a service. The voice of the king called you into his service. Ephesians 4.1, live a life according to the calling because you have been called. There is no question about it. And his call for your life, his plan for your life, according to Romans 12, is good and pleasing and perfect. It fits you like a glove. It is not burdensome. It isn't to take you out and wring you dry. It's fulfilling. There is no greater fulfillment than doing the thing that God puts you on the planet to do. Jeremiah 29, his plans for you are, are good to, to give you a hope and a future, not to harm you and take you out. But that call is conditional. It's predicated on your purity. Listen, his love is unconditional. Let me be clear today. God loves you no matter what you do, no matter how many times you face plant, no matter what your past looks like. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Neither height, nor depth, nor things present, nor things to come, nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything else in all of creation can separate you from the love of God. While we were still sinners, God proved his love for us by sending his son, and he so loved the world that he gave Jesus so that anybody who believes in him would have eternal life. His love is unconditional, but his calling is not. calling is conditioned on your purity. I, I love this quote from one of my favorite theologians, David Guzik. He says this, we must never think that some Christians are better than others or that some have passed into a place where they are super spiritual. However, we must also recognize that some Christians are more able to be used by God than others because they have cleansed themselves pastor I used to work with, he, he made a more concise statement. He said, there's a high call and there's a low call. It's your call. How usable do you want to be to God today? How ready for the master's service do you want to be today? Because last thought, I'll say this and then we'll close. While he has called you individually, your calling is bigger than you. Just as Jesus uses parts of the human body in his analogy, hands, feet, eyes, to convey his truth, so compelled by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul uses parts of the human body to convey another truth. He says, some are the hands, some are the feet, some are the ears, some are the eyes of the body of Christ. An analogy of the church, the very thing that Jesus gave his life for and is continuing to build until his return, the vehicle whereby he will transform the earth you are sitting on right now. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are a part of that body. Meaning when you are unusable, the body is not functioning as it should be functioning. So let me personalize this. We, the Father's house, this body, we need every part usable for the master's service. We need everybody embracing this call to purity if we are going to accomplish what God has asked us to accomplish here in San Francisco. Because let me remind you of the vision. This ain't it. It ain't a few hundred people on a Sunday morning sitting in a church building that actually isn't a church building yet. 
No, it is thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and our city. It is revival like we have never seen. It is Isaiah 62, where the Lord pours out his spirit in such a way that the reputation of San Francisco is changed on an international scale, where her salvation blazes like a torch and her righteousness like the dawn where we are no longer known as the forsaken city and the godless place, but we are the bride of God, that people would stand firm in their calling. They'd be like trees planted beside streams of water that bear fruit in every single season. That's the call. But in order for us to do what we've been called to do, I need you. I need every hand and every foot and every eye and every, every part of the body usable for the master's service. So, so I guess this is a call today. I'm issuing a call, if I'm allowed to do that. Not by my words, but by the words of the Holy Spirit. It's time to get serious about your faith. It's time for faith to be more than an hour and 15 minute service you spend on a Sunday morning. It's time to ascend the hill with clean hands and a pure heart and to embrace this call to holy and noble living. No more flirting with the world. No more making treaties with temptation. No more dabbling in the pervasive ways of our culture. No, we're keeping our eyes and our gaze fixed on Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. And we are living for the high call of God, not the low call any longer. I guess this is a bit of a, a weird altar call. You know, normally it's God loves you, come to Jesus. Now it's Luke 9, take up your cross, lose your life, quit messing around, and let's start building the kingdom of Jesus Christ in San Francisco the way he's called us to build the kingdom. In Jesus' name. Bow your heads, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we hear the trumpet. We hear the call. We hear the beckoning of the army to take their positions, fight for that which you've called us to fight for. And God, right now, I just, I ask for this holy moment of taking inventory. Are we ready to be used? Have we, have we qualified to step into that level of service? Even as we sang earlier, it's not about striving. It's not about performance. It's not about measuring up to some unattainable standard. It's a heart that says, I don't want anything to keep me from being used by my God. Lord, I pray that you would speak specifically, uniquely to each and every life in the room right now. If there's relationships that need to be addressed, there's subscriptions that need to be canceled. God, you have full access today. Whatever you ask of us, we just say before you even ask it, our answer is yes. You have our hearts. And, and I know this is a bit of a weird altar call, but maybe there's some people in the room today that you've just been going through the motions in your faith. Maybe you've been coming to church, but you haven't really been serving God. Maybe today's your first time at church and there was a brief moment, at least during the message, where we talked about the love of God, and perhaps you heard that. But whether it was that or anything else, maybe the Holy Spirit's tapping on your heart and saying, hey, I'm calling you today. I'm calling you to lose your life and take up the life that I've made available to you by my blood 
by my resurrected body. And if you're here this morning and you sense that nudge from the Holy Spirit to get things right, to get serious about faith, to step into this journey, I wanna pray a, a prayer of commitment with you. It's gonna sound a little different than we normally would on a Sunday, but, but before I pray that, if this is you, if you're hearing the trumpet call in the spirit to follow Jesus for real, would you just simply lift up a hand and look at me and say, Tim, that's me. I'm coming to Jesus today. Holy cow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm not even going to do it. I'm not even going to do it. Woo. Okay. Did you take a picture of that so we can see who they are? Okay. <laughs> Hallelujah. Jesus. All right. Repeat after me. Jesus, I give you my life. Thank you for giving yours for mine. I choose to follow you, to take this seriously. Forgive me of my sin and help me to remove the traps. I wanna follow you in freedom, walking in your ways from this day forward until I see you in eternity and you say, well done. In Jesus' name. Come on, amen, amen. <laughs> hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.